It's said that Hermes, messenger of the gods, instructed primitive peoples in the arts and sciences of culture, giving birth to humanity as we now know it. From the Hermetic perspective, everything is connected by core principles that are seamlessly woven into the holographic and fractal nature of reality. My job is to expose those Hermetic principles to modern people and to inspire an alchemical renaissance so we can collectively integrate them with terrestrial arts and sciences for a more beautiful and sustainable human experience. My name is Phoenix Aurelius. I'm the founder of Alchemiculture, which is a perennial philosophy that incorporates hermetic and alchemical principles into every aspect of human culture, the arts, the sciences, and our relationship with nature and natural resources. Join me as we actively weave hermeticism back into our social fabric. Hey there, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Alchemiculture. I am your host, Phoenix Aurelius, and tonight we're chatting with a longtime colleague. First time that we're e-meeting, though, we are separated by many hundreds, if not thousands of miles. This is my very good colleague here, Daniel Wiseman. Daniel, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me on, Phoenix. Really excited to have a chat tonight. Yeah, so for everybody who is watching, go ahead and introduce a little bit about yourself. I mean, obviously, you're an alchemist. You have, uh, you know, you and I have rapped about alchemy a couple of times in the past. Maybe you could start there. What got you into alchemy in the first place? Yeah, so <clears throat> my journey into alchemy and spagyrics um, really started with two different paths. Uh, I was jumping into herbal medicine as a career path, uh, but had a long time fascination with the occult as well. So during uh, my training into herbal medicine, where I was studying uh, traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurveda, um, some Western traditional and, and Western modern herbal medicine, and maintaining my occult interests, uh, I came across Spagyrics by Manfred Junius, and I came across Real Alchemy by <clears throat> Robert Bartlett, and realized that there was a home for both of these things, you know, alchemy was a big interest of mine in, in the occult fields. And it was very speculative yeah. at first, you know, but for me, you know, I'm a bit of a skeptic. And I think that helps me in this path. But, uh, you know, I was so interested in this stuff, because it seemed like everybody who was important for all of history had been interested in it. So I was, I was a spectator. And, you know, then I came into this very physical practice of, of, of verbal medicine, clinical herbal medicine and then i realized okay actually there's there's a practical aspect that's um you know very tangible and worthwhile to explore in the whole alchemical field and was just i mean mind blown a little bit upset that i hadn't learned about it earlier but you know it was very clear right away like this is what i'm going to do yeah yeah <laughs> especially with those interests i i came from very similar kind of interest been practicing various forms of occultism since just a young child and then also had got very interested in herbs didn't even know that what the word spagyric meant and came across a philosophers of nature document and printed it off my senior year in high school and just started making all these tinctures it wasn't until years later working with other herbalists that I found out hey dude what you're, what you're doing actually has its roots in the alchemical tradition is like what it opened up yeah. a new world for me man yeah yeah so so one thing that you mentioned that I thought was really cool that I'd like to maybe dive into just a little bit more is that you're very interdisciplinary in your herbalist approach because you have some training with Ayurveda, sounds like, and TCM and Western herbalism. 
And even though there are certain similarities in certain of those traditions, they all approach things actually quite differently and through quite different philosophies and diagnostics and other mm -hmm. things. So how has that mm -hmm. kind of influenced your, your work with herbalism and how has that translated into Spagyria? Yeah, that's a great question. And because it really has been a huge influence. Uh, and, and yeah, you know, it's, there's no doubt these systems aren't entirely, you know, they're not synonymous or completely congruent. They have their similarities, you know, like energetic approach or assessment and things. But even in the energetics, they could be widely different. You know, one yep. says hot, one says cold, which one's true. Uh, but, you know, I think what it was really what it has really provoked in me is to be inquisitive, uh, find the commonalities and question everything, I think, which mm -hmm. is a really important aspect of it is why does this person think this so strongly while another person thinks the opposite so strongly? Yet when we look at the results, which is the important thing here, they both can arrive at tangible results. So what is that invisible um, cord that connects yeah. to truth in these different practices, right? Uh, so that has helped so much with uh, herbal medicine and me kind of forging my own eclectic practice of how I interweave all these different things. Uh, and then also with spagyrics as well, because of course it's, I mean, no author agrees really, <laughs> no practitioner really agrees. So we've got something similar where there's the, you know, there's the main topic that there's some commonalities that tie things together, but then we have widely varying opinions and somewhere in the middle of all that is, is the truth. So keeping that sharp mind and, and trying to find places where people meet in the middle too, finding that, that uh, point of, of homeostasis really between thoughts and practices and different authors. Like I love to really push that um, with a, you know, with skepticism and an inquisitive kind of angle to these things to really test things out. Yeah, totally. Well, I think that that actually makes probably the biggest difference really in any sort of practice is approaching something skeptically, but open-minded and also being able to find your own answers because as mm -hmm. wonderful as traditions are, inevitably they're coming from a very certain perspective. And sometimes those, per uh, those perspectives over time end up growing so far mm -hmm. culturally and individually from where they were created that a reimagining or a, a new version, so to speak, kind of mm -hmm. is necessitated at some point or another. And I, you know, mm -hmm. I definitely work with traditional Chinese medicine myself. I work with Appalachian style medicine. I work with uh, Western medicine. And of course, you know, my big thing is actually the actual Paracelsian approach of, mm -hmm. you know, the five entity of disease and working with everything that he kind of established as a medical tradition. But I'm finding even his as a medical tradition has things that need to be updated and advanced within the light of what we now know and, and the cultural paradigm of how we see things. So I think it's really yeah, important. Absolutely. I mean, that's such an important thing to, you know, to to really respect and gather this great wisdom from people who walked this path before us. Uh, and in the same hand, know that we have a job to do still that, you know, not to become dogmatic about things and not to hold people or authors in this light of perfection as much as they may offer gigantic grand truths they, they may be you know like kind of taking the machete and, and carving out a path for us to walk down you know there's such gigantic value to that but at the same time we're all human and uh, we're not done yet 
you know, it would be ridiculous to think that there wasn't more uh, to be done, to be, to be evolved and, you know, things, things have changed. So there's, there's always work to be done. Well, see, I think that that's really actually important. Um, and here's something, there's a, there's a great service that the internet has done, in my opinion, there's a great disservice. And I'm sure if you've been kicking around for a while with alchemy, then you know about all about the forums and about the Facebook groups and all these things. Like myself, I've seen you get your ass chewed by certain <laughs> people who are very traditional in their approach or who through the internet, there's a way of interpreting what somebody's tone is that actually mm -hmm. isn't perfect to the way they come across in, you know, quote unquote, real life. Absolutely. And uh, it's so easy to misinterpret these things. And I think that if we had more opportunities to chat one on one like this with people, mm -hmm. even that we find fundamental disagreements with and in certain approaches, we would actually find that common ground so much faster than if we were just writing, you know, and yeah. It's it's so much easier to be a keyboard warrior and to lose uh, <laughs> lose tonality. And then, of course, if you're you know if you're somewhat stepping on toes, not necessarily intentionally in a bad way, but shaking a foundation that you know somebody may hold to be the be all end all. Like you have to expect that. And but I think that it's important for us to challenge those things. So I try to go in to these situations, not to put anybody down or even to say anybody's wrong, but you know, to ask some questions, to share what I've found that may differ from their perspectives. Um, I expect a lot of the time for to get some backlash. And I think that is good. I don't take it personally. And I, generally when that happens, I make an extra effort to befriend these people, uh, speak with them privately, uh, let them vent, uh, you know, <laughs> not yeah. take it personally and see if there's some real value to, to, yeah, having these, this contrast between one another. And I, I love that. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. I don't lose any sleep over it either way and just keep on trucking, you know, try not to make it personal. It's not about me. It's not about them. It's about the truth. Yeah. And, and that's what we need to go towards. So uh, I'm going to do what I can do to, to push that. <laughs> Brilliant take brother. I think that that's the best way to get unentangled from the messes that <laughs> oftentimes yeah. uh, tend to coalesce in, in places like that. So yeah, actually speaking of some of those places, um, you, you've come up with some really interesting posts and things um, over the last I don't know, a couple of years now that I've been watching. And of course, you know, my, my presence on Facebook is extremely limited. I stopped posting virtually at all, maybe two or three years ago on any mm -hmm. of the groups because I was just, I, I found it very futile at that time. <laughs> uh, those people who were interested in what I had to say, I already had one-on-one -on -one communication with them and yeah. other people basically were, you know, they just, like you said, wanted to be keyboard warriors. So with that being said, though, um, I'm really impressed with your work. I think that you have such a brilliant mind and such a great and logistic and very like altruistically scientific way, meaning mm -hmm. that, you know, science, the problem with it, of course, is that it's typically governed by money and it's not very scientific yeah. the way that it's run these days on a large scale. 
but you're actually using good scientific method as far as I'm concerned and actually approaching things in a very logical way, trying to rule out various variables and controls that could be creating these various effects and trying to, as best as possible, really narrow down on what the hell is happening. And that's something actually about your work that I appreciate. Where did, where did you develop uh, a lot of that attitude and where did that come from? Well, if we went right back to the start, I would say I developed that attitude by being raised Catholic. <laughs> and well, I had a lot of questions about that, you know, yeah. uh, going to Sunday school, going to church, uh, you know, and I learned to be critically minded right away. And you, to be honest, it's, it's, it's a great blessing in the end, because it's, it's brought me to an even deeper spirituality. Of course, I'm, I'm not a part of the Catholic church, uh, but it did help lead me back around to, you know, what I would say is true and honest spirituality. Um, so there's that. And from an alchemical perspective, I mean, Robert Bartlett has been such a huge influence on me. And I feel like he really, you know, pushes that envelope of combining modern science, you know, with his chemistry background and then traditional alchemy and, and flip-flopping back and forth, finding congruence in it. And I mean, some of my first experiences with alchemy and that type of approach is were the biggest light bulb moments for me. You know, they, they weren't necessarily from older texts, which I find brilliant as well, but just this modern approach, so many light bulbs went off and then opened up these different ways of understanding my world around me and, and finding that, you know, the real truth lies in the philosophy and the science being totally aligned. And, and to yeah. me, that has shown me so many false leads of alchemy. And there's always been false leads. Yeah. Like people have always struggled along the way. And that's the way it should be. I think that's, you know, adversity is such a beautiful medicine and, and helper along the way. But I think that this is an opportunity that's unique to modern times right now, where we have this ability to kind of clarify the pathway by combining these two things and finding congruence and maybe finding new discoveries or, or, or rediscoveries of things that have been long lost or mostly shrouded in whatever obfuscation or, <laughs> or, or you know, whatever. There's so many things that have, have, have buried a lot of truths, I think. And yeah. again, I think that's the way things should be sometimes. It's just the natural process. But uh, yeah, that's, it's this beautiful combination of science uh and and alchemy that's i'd say again robert bartlett really is this the the you know the pinnacle of that influence for me and people like yourself too you know i've i found you probably maybe two three years into jumping into alchemy and spagyrics and your voice sounded a lot like his you know you question things and use this like the scientific method and you know a non-corporate <laughs> way the bait use the basics of it um forge your own path too which i've always respected and found you know you steer into what you know to be true what works for you and and through your own experience and testing that and i find a lot of those same methods in in your own path so that's kind of what's pulled me into it in that way but i've i've always been i just i question things you know which yeah. you know sometimes people don't like that but i think it's important i've just uh learned along the way how to do it in a certain manner so it's not <laughs> offensive or or get lost in my own bs you know try to try to yeah. depersonalize it a little bit and be totally objective even in uh, respect to my own opinions and beliefs at the time yeah well i i think that that's one of the 
hardest tricks actually and those who master it you can tell immediately because it's like a clear light <laughs> in an otherwise obfuscated universe mm -hmm. of interesting musings on on these topics so well yeah one thing i wanted to say about what you just said is first of all i'm very honored to even have heard my own name come up in terms of uh some of your own experience that's that's really awesome but about Robert too, you know, it's no, no uh, secret that he's a good friend of mine and a colleague of mine. He's definitely influenced my work like crazy. I remember the first time I ever met him, he was giving a, a talk at one of the international alchemy conferences on the thermal decomposition of the metal acetates. And, you know, just the class alone was a mouthful, but then just seeing him talk and how fluidly and comfortably he was talking about these very advanced concepts that especially at that time were just completely over my head. I think this was, you know, 2008, 2007, 2008. Mm -hmm. I was just like blown away, but sitting there taking notes, I still got my handwritten notes of what he was talking about. And I still was like, wait, a metal acetate, like how, how do you go about creating that? You know, it, yeah. it took me many years to actually wrap my mind around the work and then to get enough familiarity with it to actually explore with it here in the laboratory and figure out, you know, oh, okay, this, this is actually pretty cool. But the thing that really stood out about his work, just like it did to you, was how scientifically he approached this. Mm -hmm. Everybody else at that conference was more or less pretty namby-pamby in the way that they were coming across with their work mm -hmm. and you know uh, i remember art kunkin god rest his soul he's passed now he was giving a presentation on what he felt to be was the philosopher's stone based on reading the turbo philosophorum and he thought that it had something to do with growing an actual tree on a radio radioactive area and so he was taking uranium pitch blend and ripening pears <laughs> on a uranium pitch blend and then eating it thinking that that was actually going to be the key to his immortality now he did live well into his 90s okay. <laughs> so there there may have been something to that but that's definitely not at all maybe maybe not the yeah i mean i think it's an interesting concept the concept of of liberating light and energy yeah. you know and, and maybe there's something to be said about evolution and, and reaching our our you know, highest peaks in opening up, like releasing light, but maybe, yeah, maybe doing it that way is a little bit rough around the edges. <laughs> Definitely a little strange. I mean, he did get me into actually radiation hormesis and studying what I would refer to today as homeopathic radioactive therapy, mm -hmm. um, which I think is actually really interesting, really fascinating, especially for applications with cancer in particular. Um, but still it's as completely separate from historical European and Arabic alchemy as, yeah. you know, as talking about baby's diapers, for instance, yeah. there's virtually no, no crossover. So yeah, it was really interesting to meet Robert and, and, uh, did you actually go and study with him then at Spagiricus Institute? Yeah, and I met some amazing people there too, which I've kept in contact with till today. So I'm I'm super thankful of that opportunity and 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 hoping to get back down there as soon as I can. I wanted to this year, but of course there's some <laughs> there's some trickiness to travel right now. Yeah, uh, I really wanted to get down there, but um, yeah, I mean I I did make it down once. I'm trying to remember what year it was. Now it was quite a few years ago. I would say. Mm, maybe 2016 ish uh but he's 
he is such a gentle giant that man yeah. i mean it is beautiful the way that he presents himself he has no ego but he is brilliant and so calm and gentle and open and and he you know i i think again he's he's one of the biggest influences of my life period uh, you know let alone just alchemy you know just yeah. to be a little bit more like that you know it, it was really an energy that you know felt very blessed to be around to be in yeah. his space and see how he does things and um you know can't say enough about the man you know, i know I, I feel i feel the same way mm -hmm. do you pick yourself up a copy of his new book uh book of antimony oh you betcha <laughs> you know, I, you know I, I of course i have not read the whole thing it's only been out for a month and that book is you know it's like a, that it's thing. a bible yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um but i thought that that was so cool because it's the first book of its kind that i'm aware of where he includes not only his handwritten notes and mm -hmm. that's really cool it mm -hmm. almost is like half of a manuscript you know the book because yeah. of that. but then you also have all of this gcms and other spectrographic data that he has compiled from being an analytical chemist and having tested these materials for years and years and years and years yeah so everything from you know basic kirkring's menstruum all the way up to uh, you know, making fixed oil versus unfixed oil of antimony and seeing what those differences look like, taking a look mm -hmm. at crystallization rates of, of uh, different stages of making the, the star regulus. Mm -hmm. um, it was just mind blowing, actually, how much data and how much information is contained inside of there. I was so glad that he was able to publish that. And I hope, because I don't, I don't know if he ever showed you, he's got actually about 25 two and a half inch thick binders binders yeah. yeah just full of his notes and spectrographic data on everything yeah. you know on everything yeah no i i did look through those binders we stayed up into the wee hours of the night you know mm -hmm. just smoking and and sharing stories until basically yeah. class started the next day and uh, i mean it's beautiful and i think that the temper of verbs was kind of like you know that first taste of the you know for people to get a good amount of that i mean i suppose yeah. you know in uh, the way of the crucible he has uh, the appendix at the end which he's analyzing right. different um you know acetate path works and and oil of gold uh but now the world is getting this gigantic chunk you know which i always hoped that he'd have the the ability to publish because i mean <laughs> who has done that I don't think anybody else has yeah. to that degree. I'm sure there's been some of it, but I mean, his position with the equipment he had available to him and his, <laughs> I mean, his life is so amazing in the way that it's unfolded, working in an, in an antimony mine at one point. I mean, clearly this man was meant to open these gates the way he is. <laughs> and true. this book is just, sometimes I just hold it. I just like feel the weight of this thing. And I'm like, to feel how lucky I am at this point. I'm thinking about, imagine how all of the people who walked before us would feel in their graves, thinking about all of that in this one place, all the people that searched for answers through antimony and medicines through antimony. And now we have this gigantic tome of just so many, it, it, he just weaved together so many beautiful aspects of this work in an intelligible way and now we now we can take that and go take it further which is yeah. his intention you know he hasn't he's never said okay it's done now this is it. The, yeah this, exactly. is, this is it he's like okay now somebody else can can find out more you know and and 
hopefully well we will now because of what he's yeah. done yeah and it'll exactly. be easier for us at least you know in terms of spectrographic data we have one of several hundred entries that need to be on he he recently came on the show i don't know maybe a month or two ago and we were talking about that in fact that was basically like two alchemists nerding out that conversation it was really hard to get an actual interview style with him mm -hmm. um but uh yeah, we, we were able to just talk about that, you know, about how important it is to be able to produce lots of data and mm -hmm. all different types of data and see where the data has discrepancies and where it overlaps and be able to try and figure out what causes those things. Because, you know, even still, I remember this must have been 2012. We went out there, I took my friend Reg, uh, Reg or Regulus out there to make the star Regulus. I mean, I named him that, that was his nickname <laughs> because he was obsessed, like Isaac Newton obsessed with yeah. making the star Regulus. And so I'm like, hey, you wanna go do this? Let's go do it. And not only did, did Robert say, yeah, let's work on some antimony, <laughs> but <laughs> he also ended up pulling out all of the, uh, all of the stuff to, um, make some glass of antimony as well mm -hmm. and when it came out the first thing he says is oh it turned out red today <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it was like what do you mean today and he was like oh it'll turn all different colors really and i was like wow really i'd only ever seen it red and yellow he's like well you just haven't made it enough then <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know blue even you know that yeah. i had never heard of blue glass from antimony before until reading his work and uh, yeah. it's incredible you know and, and yeah you did the perfect impression of his just nonchalant like he could he could solve the whole mystery of the universe and be like oh look at that like yeah, exactly <laughs> it's so true very unassuming in the way he comes across it's it's so great that's one of the things i admire most about him though is really mm -hmm. just you know, being engaged and detached simultaneously. It's, mm -hmm. that's a unique quality that I've never seen in someone. Be humble. Yeah, very humble. Well, you know what, it's time for our first break. When we come back, let's go ahead and talk a little bit more about you, a little bit more about your work and some of the things that you've been doing over in the lab that you find to be particularly interesting. And uh, we'll just kind of dive into that a little bit more. Sounds great. Awesome. Stay tuned, folks. Have you heard about our Spagyrics of the Month Club yet? As you probably know, we release five new Spagyrics each month. These range in the style of Spagyric Pharmacopoeia from tinctures, elixirs, essences, clysi, stones, and much more. But now, you can get your hands on all five new releases each month at just a fraction of the normal cost by being part of our Spagyrics of the Month Club. It's the very best way to inexpensively build your home Spagyric Apothecary, and it's also the best way to support our Research Academy. Participating is easy. Sign up for the $75 a month subscription on our website, and we ship you a four mil size of all five newly released Spagyrics that month. And shipping's even included for all orders within the USA. The best part is you just sign up once and sit back and receive your new Spagyrics delivered right to your door. It really doesn't get any easier. To get started or to learn more, go to phoenixaurelius.org and scroll down to the Spagyrics of the Month Club area on our homepage. As always, thanks so much for supporting our work. All right, everybody, we're back. We're here with Daniel Wiseman. Before the break, we were talking about how he got into alchemy. We were talking about some of his inspirations and the ways even that he started approaching things very scientifically. 
And uh, we ended with a little bit of chat, uh, reminiscing about how much we both admire and respect Robert Bartlett. And, uh, you know, what we really want to talk about, though, is Daniel himself. So you have been doing alchemical work now on a, uh, would you consider what you're doing, uh, your alchemy work on a professional level? I mean, I know that you've sold several products and that you, you still have a couple of products up on your site, I think, right? Yeah. So <clears throat> yeah, the site's never been a strong point of mine. I'm not a, uh, I've been very busy as, as a clinician and, and that's why it's a little bit more hidden. And I, and I haven't really repped myself in the retail world that much because my focus really has been clinical practice and, uh, you know, just, I'm very private about it. Like I, I like to work through word of mouth. I did have a, you know, brick and mortar clinic, in Halifax, the capital city here in Nova Scotia for a while. And, and that opened a lot of gates, uh, you know, filled, filled my books. Um, so I really didn't have a lot of time to focus on any other aspects of promoting myself. Um, it's only been the last few years where I've really tried to kind of add, you know, to the table what mm -hmm. I've been learning. Um, yeah, so that's, that's why, you know, I haven't been as, you know, as prominent out there. And I don't really... <laughs> I don't really like to stick my head out there too much either. I like my private life, but yeah, I've been doing this professionally. Um, I would say since about uh, late 2011, 2012, um, working clinically um, specifically. Um, and then, yeah, becoming a little bit more public about it in the last few years, teaching more, you know, reaching out more on, online, which you mentioned earlier is, takes a lot of energy so I kind of just <laughs> yeah. I, I pop in and out and I love making connections there uh, but I you know I can't keep up with the amount of energy it takes to deal with <laughs> social yeah. media but yeah. you know I, I I just go in and out as I feel like there's something worth sharing and and you know that's that's been fun too you know becoming a little bit more public about things <laughs> sure that's really cool so in your clinical practice um are you able to, with Canadian restrictions, actually include spagyric medicines in your, your clinical work? Yeah, I work entirely with spagyric medicines. Um, <clears throat> regulation is always a bit of a pickle. <laughs> sure. uh, it's something I have a big interest in. Uh, I'm a board member of both the Nova Scotia Herbalist Association and, and the a federal association as well, the CCHA. Canadian Council of Herbalist Associations. And, and there I work specifically focused on regulation in Canada. <clears throat> so, you know, I'm careful about the way I do things. Uh, you know, mostly careful because, of course, you know, we're dealing with people's lives. Yeah, uh, but yeah. then, of course, we have to think about the regulation side of things, too. So uh, patient to practitioner relationships are thankfully protected by um, there's there's different regulations that protect that. So uh, retail is a whole other thing, but essentially still like I am responsible for myself. You know, if something goes wrong, I'm completely and utterly responsible for it. And I'm happy with that. I mean, we all should be responsible yeah. for our clinical practices. Right. So uh, I practice in a safe way. Uh, and thankfully I've, I've never had any issues, uh, of safety, you know, I mean, people can be sensitive and have, you know, difficult times in their healing. Uh, you know, sometimes it takes a while to work things out. So I'm sure you're familiar with it oh, yeah. in your own clinical practice, but 
Uh, yeah, I do. I do things safely um, and within what I what I'm confident um, that realm of of confidence. You know, I I try not. I don't stretch outside of that for other people. You know, that's what I can do with myself, uh, but nobody else. You know, I, I like to be yeah. responsible in that way. So it's it's a nice little niche uh, as far as being somewhat protected to practice and yeah. and constantly push for more rights um, in in the right kind of way. To, to pave the way for people well now and and that will follow in clinical practice in in Canada and and elsewhere yeah well I think that that's absolutely awesome I think that it's super great that you have the opportunity to work you know one-on-one -on -one with your clients and have the ability to work with spagyria uh, spagyria without too many oversights really getting in the way here in the United States it's very gray water Mm -hmm. So it's very, very difficult. This is what, part of what Robert has always struggled, struggled with. Um, yeah. FDA. You know, yeah, <laughs> exactly. They, and they love to play whack-a-mole. So you have to do things just the right way. And <laughs> if there were herbalists who were also trained as spagyrists here in the United States, they can't legally be applying any sort of spagyric medicine because it's not approved in any form of pharmacopoeia. Yeah. However, if you you know, rely on your training, give them capsule herbs of the, the same herb or herbal formula that you're using. Sure. No problem. And if you give them a tincture without salts, for instance, you can still use that. You start making spagyric tinctures of that though. It's like, you really have to be careful. So. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, uh, it's difficult. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a difficult arena. I mean, everywhere in the world. I mean, it, Europe is, is even more strict in some countries, true, yeah, uh, some not bad. so much, but uh, I mean, many of the, you know, Western European countries, especially they're very, very strict uh, or in some countries, spagyrics, it's a bit more in the limelight, but in the sense that it's also highly regulated, you know, needing to be prescribed. Yes. So, I mean, this is our battle all over. Right. And, and I think, <laughs> Oftentimes when regulatory authorities go after things like this, I think it kind of, <laughs> it helps show that they're worth looking into. It's like, oh, exactly, feeling yeah. a little bit uh, <laughs> defensive, are you? Like, yeah. and to me, that says a lot. So, but yeah, we, we have to be careful. You know, we don't want to cut ourselves off and make this unavailable to people. So we have to play safe and try to work with these people too. You know, I try to see regulatory authorities as human beings too, although there's a certain non- human yeah very egregore aspect oh yeah the the egregor of it is is you know it's intimidating and obviously it, oftentimes we're not feeling the same way you know <laughs> people like us and yeah. and with that greater soul of of regulatory health authorities but there are human beings within them and yeah. just like i find everything else in my life if you work one person at a time just work with what's around you uh, you can make little subtle changes and people can make a difference from within the system and you can make a difference from on the outside of it interacting with that system so i try to stay positive about it i mean i have a lot of opinions of course <laughs> sure, strong yeah. opinions but at the same time i i, I I try to be diplomatic and, and think about, okay, what's the end goal here? Yes. Let's not get in a senseless uh, debate or stick your head out in a way that's not going to get you anywhere exactly. and, and limit yourself or waste energy. Let's, let's, let's move forward and be productive. Yeah. That's the most important key. You and I are of, a, of the same mind in that regard. Um, and in fact, a lot of regards. Mm -hmm. So, you know, do you find yourself in a position as a clinical herbalist, actually working with many of the, what I might refer to as 
baser items of spagyric pharmacopoeia, uh, like ethanol-based spagyric tinctures and things like this. And if so, why do you find that those, those items that you might be working with in terms of baser are still effective? Because there's this tendency today to take a look at things that are only really advanced, say, mm -hmm. you know, like pyrolytic stones and, you know, works like uh, Lynn Osborne is putting out a lot of and other things. Mm -hmm. And saying like, well, this is real alchemy and spagyria is actually less than, <laughs> you know, wh where do you sit with all of that? What's your, what's your own experience? I love this question and I love talking on this and I've been trying to do more of it lately in my, uh, my own work and, and anytime people give me a chance to speak on it. So I, I don't think that these are lesser thans at all. You know, uh, I think there's some nuances about modern spagyria that may not be found in some of the older texts. And that is a, a reason in itself why people look down on them all these like spagyric tinctures in general. I mean, yeah. people like Junius and Frater Albertus, they kind of carved out some new ways using the same philosophy and principles. But the way I look at it is different doorways to the same room. And I mean, this comes down to if we're talking about clinical therapeutic use, or even if we're talking about personal use of these substances, we have to think about like, what is our goal in what we're doing here? So if we have something, love the word base that you used here, or I often use the word fixed, I'm yeah. sure you use it as well. If we have uh, an issue, which is predominantly in the physical body, we have a fixed issue. This, this is traditional knowledge, a fixed disease and a volatile disease and yes. the full spectrum of that from A to Z back again. Uh, so I think there is a place for all these different preparations, whether it be the most advanced works or these very simple tinctures. I don't like using the word crude. I don't yeah. like using the, like the, I don't even like differentiating between spagyrics and alchemy. Like, oh, this is a spagyric product and this is alchemical because you know, I, I disagree with Jean Dubois and his, his, he made the comment that uh, I think maybe Frater Albertus did as well, that, that an alchemical product is something that has been changed by the process. And therefore a spagyric tincture is not that, but some of these more advanced works are, that's just chemically false. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we can just yeah. prove that uh, empirically, this is chemically false. Uh, the most basic of spagyric preparations like an ethanolic tincture, uh, the end product is something new that was not contained in any of the pieces that you used to put them together. So sure, it's simple. Sure, it's easier. Uh, but to say that it's lesser than it is false. And sometimes, honestly, it's the best option. And if we're talking about people's health and in clinical practice, when people are coming to you to help work on their health, they often have a lot of things which are bodily in origin. Therefore, yeah. they require that gap, that gateway to be entered first. Maybe, be, of course, there's always going to be other things as well, sure. different doorways you want to enter into the person. That's where you can get uh, fancy with your formulation or different types of preparations. But <laughs> these entry-level spagyrics are hugely powerful. And, and uh, I think we have the chemistry to show why, and certainly they are, they are new things. So if we're talking about the definition of alchemy being to take these parts, you know, take things apart, and when you put them back together, forming this alchemical child, something new, well, the most basic of spagyric preparations does exactly that. So yeah, well, that's, that's cool. Again, you and I are of the same mind there, because that's exactly what I've seen. You know, I, 
I oftentimes get criticized for my work these days because the majority of what I make available are spagyric tinctures, spagyric essences, spagyric elixirs, things like this. And people will say, oh, well, you're not performing real alchemy. <laughs> and it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't know where you came up with that idea. Come visit my lab and mm -hmm. I'll show you all the other things that we're working on besides what we're doing commercially. Mm -hmm. And you'll get a whole different sense of what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. But um, at the same time, I've been able to take a look at these very, you know, like I say, baser preparations or whatever entry level pre preparations and seeing that they have immense value and that they mm -hmm. are infinitely more potent and able to be worked uh, inside of, of a clinical environment in a way that not only decreases the amount of herb that needs to be used, but it also enhances and decreases the cost overall of, of the individual that needs to be taking it in almost every instance, if it's, you know, I can't use the term prescribed, but if it's applied properly, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, which I think is really important, you know, people like you and I, who are largely agricultural, know that it takes an e enormous amount of space to even produce enough lavender to get any significant amount of essential oil, if that's what you're going to be producing. Yeah. And they have no sense just because of modern day economics, you know, when you can go to the store and even buy a certified organic, you know, lavender essential oil, 15 mil for, you know, 30 American or 35 Canadian or whatever, you know, that's their sense of value on it. And it's like, eh, try growing it and then put the time into distilling. Yeah. It and you'll see that it's enormous. And so for me, having done that for so many years, it's like, you really have to be smart with the amount of herb that you actually have available, unless you want to be a full-time farmer, in which case you wouldn't have the opportunity to be doing alchemy full-time as well. You know? Yeah, it's I've tried to dance both paths and uh, I've realized <laughs> you can't you can a little bit. And I know that you've done some of that yourself, but you, you don't have to find a healthy balance of that. And it's just I mean, it shocks me sometimes the price of certain products you see or, you know, organic fair trade dried turmeric root for six dollars a pound and it's like have you ever grown a root crop before <laughs> like and then to do it to the degree that i know you do it as well i mean i would like with my agriculture working with you know biodynamics or, or you yeah. know just an astrodynamic method uh, of farming of harvesting uh, of with the whole process of agriculture and then going straight into the spagyric process the amount of work that's done and yeah. then somebody wants to pay 10 bucks for something that took took like 12 months of your life you know your blood sweat and tears and the sustainability factor i mean it's huge like we have to think about taking less from this planet to to do more with it or else we're going to run out it's very simple math yes. and i think you made a great point about you know the advancements that spagyric medicines have in bioavailability I mean, that's the whole point. That's that's what pharmacology does as well with with pharmaceutical medications. They try to find ways to make drugs more potent, more bioavailable, so you can take less of them and they have less side effects. And the same is very, very, very true of spagyrics. And they have very, very common points where they meet and they do very similar things. You know, pharmaceutical ideas and actions and spagyric actions where we're all trying to get past, uh, you know, first past digestion or metabolism to get these substances into the body and have them used on demand by the body as we see fit, like hit the targets that we want and not the ones that we don't. Exactly. And to be able to do that with less 
I mean, it's better for everything. It's better for the planet. It's better for people's bodies. Uh, you have more medicine left in the end. Like it's just mathematically sensical. It's it's uh, it's moral and ethical. I think we have a responsibility to do these things. You know, for for a multitude of reasons. Yeah, me too. I think the more experience that people get in those types of fields, the more they'll come to that same conclusion. Actually, because mm -hmm. you know these people who are selling turmeric for like you were saying you know six dollars a pound or whatever it is it's preposterous how much slavery is actually yeah. going into that to make it available at that price somewhere yeah. in the developed world yeah yeah and it's horrible so, so it's really important to get a grip on ethics and it's like if you're not willing to do it why would why would you feel that somebody else should be doing that for 20 cents you know yeah uh, farming these things and taking up all of the space and uh, everything else. So I think, yeah, I think that that's really a pretty critical factor. And again, you know, let, let's actually talk about this because I, I believe it was you, correct me if I'm wrong, that actually pointed out recently, maybe within the past, you know, three to six months, that you have found that when you take uh, ethanol expagyric tincture, for instance, the higher the ethanol content, the less the water content, the greater esterification that you get of that tincture when you're adding spagyric salts back into it or potassium carbonate back into the tincture. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, <clears throat> and that's the first step. You know, we we know that's how esterification happens. You know, it, it is dependent upon the lack of water, that the rate of conversion of things like terpenes into esters this combination of, of, you know, acids and, and ethanol combining together, becoming more water soluble. That's, that's a step in creating some beautiful substances, which are much more bioavailable that are, yeah. are acting a lot like some types of pharmaceuticals. And it's then the even science, actually, it is the science. exact same science. You know, if you look at, you take a bottle of ibuprofen and you look at it and you, the ingredients say free acid and potassium salt, it is identical. Like, I mean, in this case, it's not always this way with pro drugs like uh, ibuprofen, but in this right. case, it's literally the same salt, you know, and, and potassium is arguably one of, if not the most important electrolyte in the body. So what better taxi cab uh, to put our medicines inside of and then potassium and well nature gave it to us exactly that way um, and then beyond the esters too you know the salts that are created in the process too the carboxylic acid salts when you're taking these oily compounds and they're meeting with a salt body and forming aggregate compounds that you know, often they actually drop out of solution. And I was interested to see in some of your menus where you're using redissolving some of these salts that don't dissolve in in preparations, which I think is groundbreaking work. You know, we're seeing Warren at Evolved Alchemy doing yeah. similar things. I do the same thing. Like these are very, very valuable compounds. And, you know, so many people think, oh, it's done or the salt is absorbed into the tincture. Yeah. And it's like, well, Probably. not entirely. And actually some of the most important and interesting compounds created in this process are, are found in those salts. But all of this is as a result of a lack of water. You know, you see all these references in alchemical text to evil waters, Yeah. you know, yeah. and you have to wonder, like, I mean, is this what they're speaking of, uh, you know, in a philosophical or allegorical way, but now we see a chemical reality to this. This is actually hindering uh, the alchemical marriage of 
you have oils and, and salt, you know, acids and alkali. You know, I think that this is really important. And this is actually what we need to get across because so many of my colleagues today, especially who come from herbalism and then practice alchemy, have quote unquote ideal ratios for their menstruum based on the herb. And they're taking this largely from analytical data of tinctures that have been made through an herbalist paradigm of say taking a dried herb, adding 40% water and 60% ethanol and using that as the menstruum to tincture it. And then finding this wide spectrum of phytochemical components and saying, because this has the most phytochemical components, it is therefore the best, Mm -hmm. which is one way of looking at it. But then what we're finding as alchemists, especially, you know, when we read Paracelsian works or when we read the works of say, John French or Raymond Lilly or any of these others, they were clearly working to constantly develop non-polar solvents Mm -hmm. where we can find that the less polar something is, the more esterification actually that ends up happening, even if they didn't end up having those terms, right? Yeah. So uh, we would find that people like Paracelsus obsessed and, you know, the, the Paracelsus two or what I would, what, what historically is referred to as uh, Basil Valentine, who I yeah. really think is a posthumous publication of Paracelsian works. Um, what we end up seeing is that we're creating all of these different nonpolar solvents and circulata, like the mm-hmm. fiery spirit of Basil Valentine, for instance, that end up creating absolutely no water in the final product yeah. to be able to create these different types of extractions. And the less of that that we see when we're adding back salts to it, whether that be potassium carbonate, potassium acetate, or some other form of salt that is indigenous to the material being uh, extracted, we begin to see unique changes that happen only when that salt is added back. Absolutely. No, it's an amazing point, uh, you know, and, and it's just the truth. I mean, it's chemically true. It's philosophically true. If we, again, this merging of, of, of these two different pathways, philosophy and science. And, you know, there's something to be said too about what we don't take when, you know, this idea of getting yes. absolutely every single compound out of something. Well, let's look at water soluble compounds. We find a lot of allergens here, proteins, sugars, fats, uh, and also what we find is largely a lot of macronutritional compounds rather than these really strong, powerful therapeutic principles. Uh, and realistically, like if we're looking for macronutritional, macronutritional principles, well, then we should be eating plants. Uh, we don't get a dose of, of iron from a, 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 like an ethanolic tincture, even if it's 40% uh, alcohol and 60% water, the, the idea of getting nutritional value from tinctures, I think is just, I mean, it's not logical. Uh, and then on top of it, again, there is this ability to remove a lot of things that bother people. I've found in my clinical practice that focusing more on these ethanolic, at least at the beginning, I mean, there's many ways we can go down the pathway after that, but, uh, you know, extracting with ethanol and removing some of these macronutritional compounds, we see sensitivities drop big time. And the other thing too, which is interesting in research is <clears throat> I've come across research from a, a company called Rutland's Biodynamics that mm-hmm. um, they make fresh plant tinctures. And in their research, they found that they actually 
um, and we're able to preserve more of these macronutritional compounds by not drying and that the active compounds of plants uh, will bond with fats and proteins and lipids and become more bioavailable that way. So they found some benefit to that in one sense, but in spagyrics, we have the salt. We, we, don't, need, um, we don't need these compounds these macronutritional compounds as surfactants any longer. Uh, and I would say it's better because it's more balanced. I mean, we, if we're trying to find homeostasis in general, I mean, with spagyrics, you have an acid, an alkali, and a neutral, right? You have all three principles, scientifically speaking. If you're banking on a fresh plant tincture with a conventional method with no salt, you have an acid, a neutral and an acid. The macronutritional compounds are acidic and the therapeutic compounds are acidic and the ethanol, the co-surfactant is, is neutral, but now you, you still have um, an imbalanced equation. You have something that's predominantly acidic and you have a bunch of things that are known to be, again, allergens or cause sensitivities in people. And again, spagyrix doesn't need it. You know, we can dry the plants and we can bank on the salt being that taxi cab for our medicine. And even better, when the body enzymatically chops up these aggregate compounds, the potassium salt is, is an ionic compound. It's, it has a negative charge and it works as a scrubber, right? Yeah. It, it, it grabs onto positively charged pathogens or uh, heavy metals. It acts as a chelating agent. So we have this dual effect of getting the therapeutic principles into our body, and then also cleaning our body with the potassium salt. And you don't have that with the conventional tinctures. Um, although, yeah, there's an amazing benefit found um, it, through Rutland's research. And you know, I, I'm not trying to put it down. It's, these are different ways. And I yes. think we could all learn from this research and move forward. Um, you know, and I quite like their tinctures. Uh, they feel good, they taste good. I use them in a clinic that I work in, um, the, uh, like at a school. But um, yeah, I do think that the spagyric method has something magic to it that it does not. And um, this absence of water is, is huge, you know, at, at least in the beginning. You know, again, I think there's ways that you can go down further pathways of using water later in the process in very specific ways to uh, make more full spectrum extracts, to make use of these water-soluble salts that are created in the marriage as well. Yeah. Uh, and they can be used by themselves. They can be combined together. But now that that marriage has been completed, uh, the water was eliminated from the point where you needed yes. it chemically. And you can find different ways to work with them. Uh, you have to be careful still, though, of course, because, uh, yes. you know, wa water can start to undo the magic if it's the wrong pH, like if it's acidic or if it's or if alkali. it's not structured properly, then... Not structured properly. Yeah, it's a good point. So there's still, you know, there's a lot of nuances to be careful about with with the entry of water into the equation, even, even later in the works. But yes, yeah, these are really interesting things. You know. Very interesting things. You know what? Let's go ahead and give the audience a chance to breathe for a sec. We're going to go to a break. When we come back, we'll dive right back in because I've got a number of other fun talking points that we can discuss. So stay tuned, folks. Perhaps you've heard Phoenix speak about alchemy and spagyria, and you yourself want to start practicing? Phoenix has been engaged in more than 15 years of consistent split tests in order to find the most practical and standardized methods to create the highest quality items of spagyric pharmacopoeia possible. 
He provides the most detailed multimedia courses in existence, walking you through every aspect of Spageria, including beginning theory, setting up your lab, proper technique, important details on how to make a spagyric like a pro, tips for advanced practice, alchemical and hermetic applications, astrological theory, and so much more. In any of his online courses, you will be thoroughly guided through making your own items of spagyric pharmacopoeia, including spagyric tinctures, spagyric elixirs, spagyric essences, spagyric stones, and so much more. You will be able to set up your own laboratory in your home or business and craft up your very own alchemical apothecary in no time flat. To learn more about our online courses, simply visit www.phoenixaurelius.org forward slash online courses and begin your spagyric journey today. And as an alchemiculture podcast listener, you get to save 15% off the tuition of any course by entering the coupon code Teach me 15 at checkout. Again, that is coupon code Teach me 15, which will save you a whole 15% off any of Phoenix's online courses. As always, all proceeds go towards supporting this podcast and furthering our research. Welcome back, everybody. We're back from the break. Again, we're here with Daniel Wiseman. We've been chatting about shop during this last little section, actually talking about alchemy, talking a lot about uh, esterification, talking about the importance of spagyric salts and the entire principle of salt. Uh, I guess before I go any further, I just want to say that, you know, when we're talking about salt within most cases of vegetable uh, alchemical works or spagyric works, what we're really talking about is potassium carbonate. And at a later phase, uh, you know, a quote unquote more advanced or more involved phase, we're also dealing with potassium acetate. Um, I personally was always trained. I don't know if you received this. Did you ever study the Jean Dubuis philosophers of nature curriculum at all? Yeah, I quite like it. Okay. So in there, you know, Dubuis was like very, very adamant that once you have leached the all of the potassium carbonate that you can using water alone that you then use vinegar right yeah yeah the fixed I, salts are un, unsol insoluble salts exactly <clears throat> which i think is one of the most important things and in, in the curriculum that i teach all of my students and have taught maybe this is relatively new i didn't teach this from you know 25 2005 when i first started teaching this was like maybe in the last five years or so that i started teaching this is not only should we strive to get that vinegar soluble, but if you have the technology and you know how to do it, try and get as much acetic acid in there as possible to open that up and get as much of the potassium acetate. Um, the interesting thing is that obviously potassium carbonate is not soluble in ethanol at all. So mm -hmm. when we add this to our tincture, what we're relying on is the iatrochemical reactions between the alkali of the potassium carbonate and any of the acids and or terpenes that are found inside. I guess terpenes could be considered an acid in most cases, mm -hmm. actually uh, creating those, those plant esters. Mm -hmm. Whereas with potassium acetate, it actually does dissolve into the mm -hmm. ethanol and it creates some sort of extra je ne sais quoi that I don't even know chemically that I have terms to understand. I, I don't even know what to look for when I'm analyzing these things over here on my end with intrinsic data field technology. Do you have any idea what, what's going on with this? 
Yeah, I've been doing some of that work as well. And it's it's an area of question for me in a lot of ways, but it's uh, it's clear to me that it's of, of high value. Uh, I mean, not only are we able to get some potassium acetate, but we're pulling um, tiny amounts of acetates of other minerals and metals as well that the water wouldn't grab, you know, maybe we're pulling zinc out yeah, calcium, or, you know, the zinc, calcium, yeah. there are so many things, you know, and many of these minerals um, are, you know, in acetate form are used as supplements. So right there, if we can create soluble forms of minerals, this is a way to pull some micronutritional compounds into our tinctures. And of course, it's part of the body of this plant. So if we're leaving it behind, it's like, well, I like to have all my limbs personally, all my, all my fingers, <laughs> yeah. my toes, my eyes, my ears. My, I like to have it all. And to be holistic and to be true to the philosophy, I think we have to make sure that we are, we're not leaving things behind um, that should be included. So that's interesting. You know, the way of using acetic acid to pull these out and something that I've also experimented with as well is depending on your batch size, of course, is you can work the acetate path with yeah. this method. You can go fully into creating another spirit, oil and salt by using acetic acid to pull out from the ashes after the water extraction. Uh, and you can have a whole new tria prima that can be also included into the tincture and open up another level of the, you know, fractal reality of, of spagyric medicine. So these, these are some pathways that I've been exploring as well. Um, chemistry wise, I've got some big question marks, like what, what, <clears throat> what collaborations are made? Cause we, we have to assume that, you know, these salts um, dissolving into solution are, are going to have some pairings perhaps that happen between them and the existing uh, compounds in our original tincture. Uh, what, what are those? I'm not quite sure. Um, you know, and then in solid extracts, uh, they're quite, uh, efficient at, you know, making very beautiful stones too, right? We can, mm. we can impregnate these salts, uh, with oils or tinctures and, and grow beautiful stones and they're, they're being soluble together. Uh, they work quite well. You know, there's yeah. always that issue of potassium, uh, carbonate and not being, ethanol soluble and, and finding homogeny in an end product can be quite difficult. Acetate yeah. salts, not so much. They yeah. really no agree. Issue. No issue yeah. whatsoever. Exactly. You know, it's interesting because by definition, a spagyric or an alchemical stone should be something that is neither soluble in water, which is interesting because potassium acetate is soluble in both. It's soluble yeah. in water. It's also soluble in ethanol but it should be neither soluble in water by the time you finish it, nor should it be able to smoke when put, you know, or have any exhaust when put over a flame so that neither mm -hmm. fire nor water are able to have an effect on it. I've been able to make stones that fire are not able to affect with potassium carbonate. I've been able to make many stones that water is not able to affect with potassium acetate, but if I take a potassium acetate stone and put it over the fire, maybe it's just that I'm not incubating long enough. I don't know. These things are different for every plant. And so, you know, my trials are constantly underway to try and do this, but to date, I've not been able to come up with one that fire isn't able to melt. And it's like, ah, damn it. And yeah, you know, all that work. <laughs> exactly. And then simultaneously, uh, water, over time does indeed, like if I leave it submerged for five minutes, no problem with mm -hmm. most cases with a potassium carbonate stone, especially using 
the same style uh, that Jean Dubuis used for the caraway stone of eternity. When I make mm -hmm. my stones, that's pretty much so they, they all have some form of what I call rarefied fixed sulfur in it. Maybe it's going to be the water soluble, maybe it's not water soluble fixed sulfur. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's really difficult to tell. That's dependent on each and every herb that I've worked on. But, you know, if I leave them in there for three or four days, Sure enough, the whole thing starts to fall apart to a certain degree. Yeah. It starts to dissolve. So I've never found something that truly fits that definition. But then again, we've not ever seen anybody actually discover these things or write about them like, hey, I left this stone submerged for two weeks, you know, in an incubator at 40 degrees Celsius in 500 milliliters of water. What happened? I've never mm -hmm. seen anybody really post information like that in the modern day. And it's certainly not written about in any of the older books. Uh, and we have to keep in mind that Jean Dubuis had this penchant, this strong penchant for exaggeration. I mean. Yeah, we got to take it with a grain of salt, yeah. you know, and, and I didn't see any pictures of him succeeding either. Right. Let's where like, or anybody around him saying, yeah, I saw this, we did this in a class. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> we have to question that we don't have, you know, we, we don't want to assume he's a liar or something, but there's certainly a lot of stretches. And I think that could be helpful, too. It pushes people to to push further into things uh, and see if they could figure it out. Personally, I haven't had 100% success either. I've had a lot of the same results as you. Uh, in my mind, I feel like it's probably creating some sort of mineral or metallic substance to make sense of not dissolving and not burning uh, and, and that could be whole in itself, uh, because of course, you know, although we may have started with some plant oils, uh, in the end, we know that minerals and metals uh, can produce their own salt, sulfur, and mercury. Uh, so I feel like that end product at some point is some sort of mineral or metallic product that has a very, very, very strong capability to perform the way that the stone is supposed to perform, you know, extract other things. Um, so I wonder if that's it. And, and <clears throat> is it one thing? Like, is it one mineral? Is it a multitude of things that share common attributes? I'm not sure. I, ha I haven't, uh, haven't been to the end of that road yet, but uh, yeah. it makes me really question it. And again, just like yourself, I've noted that uh, I'm not seeing anybody prove it and show it, which pushes me even further. Like, okay, come on, let's, let's do this. Is it true? Or, or, <laughs> exactly. Like, or is it not, you know, cause we could certainly, maybe it's not true and we'll be searching forever for it. Uh, you know, but I think there's some pretty good hints that there was success somewhere along the way. Hopefully somebody's telling the truth. And I think chemically speaking that, yeah, there should be substances like that can do that. I mean, like it, gold doesn't smoke and it doesn't dissolve into water. Now, gold alone isn't going to produce some of the other results of, you know, the attributes of the stone. But, you know, we've got things that do similar, like have similar attributes there. We just have to find something that does it all yeah. um, and, and through these processes. So more work to be done. Always more work to be done. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, uh, anybody who's watched any of my YouTube videos, and especially those of you who've watched one of my YouTube videos uh, talking about uh, how I like to best extract mushrooms with ethyl acetate. In fact, I've been playing around for about two years now, extracting a wide variety of different substance, substances with ethyl acetate. Um, I found that it can even produce on certain crystals like rose quartz and clear crystal quartz and amethyst and citrine and other, other quartz-based and silica-based uh, minerals. 
it can pull an interesting fraction out of those as well, mm -hmm. um, which isn't that surprising actually, because in John H. Reed's book, he was producing what I think is more or less a type of ethyl acetate, which would have been John H. Reed's uh, vegetable alkahest. Yeah. Um, it's with a spin on it though you know i'm close with john and another huge influence of mine and i would say it's ethyl acetate uh with a bit of the products of pyrolysis as well i think uh, yeah. per perhaps the most important thing is the acidic phlegm because he doesn't drive it to full pyrolysis but if you read very carefully uh, i i believe it's probably the acidic phlegm that comes over that lends itself to um, mineral and gemstone work me too. And also his use uh, where he's adding the salts in after distilling everything, he's, he's basically treating it like it's a spagyric tincture itself. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's something in that process that is actually acidifying the material in order to make it more useful towards the mineral kingdom. Mm -hmm. um, because I'm not able, uh, based on his alkahest that I've used and based on just pure commercial grade ethyl acetate, I get two entirely different results actually <laughs> with the minerals. Yeah, no, it's interesting. And <clears throat> something he's noted too, and uh, we, I've worked this method quite a bit, is that, you know, you could actually succeed with this method with just plain ethanol, you know? So there's there's a lot to be discovered here. Now it produces something different than ethyl acetate does, or if you use just acetic acid, uh, it's not to say that it's uh, fruitless to proceed with this more arduous path of creating his vegetable alkahest, but um, you know, something that piqued my interest about it is it has some similarities to Kirkring's menstruum in the sense that you're mineralizing your solvent, right? So then pulling it from one kingdom into another, making a bridge substance, which is so important for making potable medicines. Um, and, and personally, like I, I feel like some of these, this gemstone work has a lot to do with um, not so much the silica that is the, you know, the base body of whatever uh, rose quartz, amethyst, citrine, right. he's talking about rose quartz, but it's things like iron that are bringing that color, that red color into it. And then we could think of the chemistry of, of you know, acetates or oxides, uh, sulfides, whatever, it depends how we're right. working it. But uh, we could think about how those things react with, with different menstrua and what we could produce from them uh, in, in that sense. That's an interesting chemical lead actually and something that I'd not thought about is what chemical agents are creating that coloring because that's stuff mm -hmm. that is known and then seeing if various things like for instance you might find a trisulfide extracts with that type of solvent very easily whereas mm -hmm. you know if it is an oxide for instance it may not have any sort of reaction whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, or a, or a different reaction. So that's really interesting. You've really turned me on to something there. I'm going to pay attention to that here henceforth. So as we apply this, though, to the vegetable kingdom, I'm still playing around with a lot of things, as I'm sure you are. I haven't arrived on anything conclusive where the best method to produce a spagyric product from an acid or from acetic, uh, no, sorry, ethyl acetate. Mm -hmm. um, typically, I think we both agree that the extraction of the herbal material happens with the ethyl acetate. But then from there, after we filter out that herb, 
I remember you and I having a short discussion online about actually adding the salts directly in to mm -hmm. that ethyl acetate. But then when you distill out the ethyl acetate after that in order to create your product, of course you'd filter it uh, to get all that crude potassium carbonate material out. But then after that filtration, once you distill out the ethyl acetate, you're pretty much left you're resolved, as far as I can tell, at keeping that as a type of spagyric pitch. And mm -hmm. you can maybe freeze dry it or even dry it out lightly in a dehydrator, put it in a capsule, uh, apply it. It's not very water soluble. Some of it is, but not all of it. It doesn't, uh, it's not 100% water soluble. So then we also discussed, you know, some of the things that I was doing, which was making uh, a tincture with the ethyl acetate, filtering out the biomass, uh, and then distilling out the ethyl acetate after that, and then dissolving it in ethanol, and then adding the, the spagyric salts. But you made an important point. And when I do that, there's a lot of precipitate that comes out. Yeah. Uh, that precipitate happens just like it would if you were to make a water-soluble extract of something and add ethanol into it to change the acidity. Now you get, you know, all sorts of different types of lipids and other things being able falling to, out. Uh, yeah, falling out of suspension. Mm -hmm. I have noted though, that there is definitely a difference both in the potency as well as in the color and the saturation of a tincture made in that method with the ethanol soluble components versus just an ethanol soluble tincture of the same herb. Um, yeah. So, and then I've also noted that all of those things, they're typically polysaccharides and lipids that fall out of suspension. Mm -hmm. Those seem to be medicinal as well. And those are water soluble for the most part. Yeah. So it's interesting because in one work, there are so many pathways that are available. Have you landed on anything or any interesting way to work with acetate, uh, sorry, uh, ethyl, uh, acetate work in such a way that, that you feel good about it? Yeah. I mean, you make some great points and, uh, I've explored all these methods as well. And again, I think a lot of the time it comes down to what is, what's your end goal with, with the type of extract. Cause I've noted too, even with the precip precipitation of, of redissolving into ethanol, even though you're losing some things behind, it's markedly different than just an, a basic ethanolic spagyric tincture. Um, also too, I mean, if you go into PubMed and do some research into herbal extracts, there are quite a few studies that show that the ethyl acetate extract of all methanol, ethanol, aqueous, ethyl acetate outperforms very often. And in some cases, it's the only one that performs. There's a particular example with uh, using teasel root uh, and, and looking at how effective it is at treating Lyme disease, I believe, and ethyl acetate was the only one that worked, you know, it's this famous herb that's been used, uh, for, for Lyme, quite a, you know, conundrum in itself. Um, and we showed that, you know, if that basic hydroethanolic or ethanolic tinctures in this case of the study, what they're looking at now, there's only a few variables they're looking at. It's not the totality of the subject, but they weren't effective, but ethyl acetate was, you know, and I think the beauty of this is that we're having a fixed and a volatile sulfur taken and pulled into the mix in a more evolved way. We're not having to, to resort to water. Again, this evil water, we're able to get both fixed and volatile components 
and through numerous pathways uh, react with the salt. Um, personally, I, I definitely have found that my most favorite, most potent uh, extracts made this way were solid extracts. Uh, and the best ones I found were in, you know, most of the time I was doing the same thing as yourself. I was removing the undissolved potassium carbonate salts. But what I found is that by circulating over and over or refluxing, uh, particularly under vacuum as well, and then evaporating down to a hard stone and keeping all mm. of the potassium salts, that allowed for water solubility. And those yeah. stones, like, you know, they're very, very, uh, let's call them a rudimentary kind of stone in a sense, but uh, these solid extracts or, uh, you know, a spagyric pitch of sort, they are super potent. They are really, really, really potent as, mm -hmm. as very bodily fixed medicines. And you have a very good solubility rate into water. Whereas some of the other methods you'll see they come apart. Some things are water soluble, but then you'll see it, an oily uh, scum on the top of your water. So you know, okay, well, this, this aspect of the medicine uh, wasn't perfectly married. You know, it wasn't, it hasn't become homogenous with the salt and, and therefore it's falling out of solution when you add it to water. Um, but keeping all of that salt uh, evaporating down to a solid stone or extract after, you know, long circulation, gentle circulation or Personally, I'm a big fan of using vacuum and doing reflux at low temperatures under vacuum um, to give a good, strong reaction. Wait until you don't see any signs of reaction any longer. The off-gassing, decarboxylation reactions like that. You see that bubbling, right? You see the colors change. Um, yeah, and then evaporating down at that point uh, to remove the ethyl acetate. Those are some potent solid extracts. Now, Every single herb, every single mushroom will finish up at, at a different sort of yeah. uh, consistency. And then you have to think about dosage and how am I going to give this to somebody if it's kind of gunky? Uh, how are we going to standardize yeah. this, especially when they're quite potent? So you don't need a lot. So there's a lot of questions about um, the use of it in that way. Uh, some have had really great success in actually just dissolving into water and then uh, adding ethanol to preserve. Yeah. Yeah, and sometimes you get some unwanted reactions when that, that ethanol goes in there. So you have to find the point where it's the, the least amount of ethanol, but you have a good amount of, of preservative effect. Then you can yeah. standardize it as a liquid, which I find is always easier for user friendliness. But yeah, yeah that keeping all of that salt and evaporating down onto it uh, has been to me the most interesting um, end product that I've found from these numerous paths, which are all valid in their own respect. That's really fascinating. As I'm going through that in my head, there's two things that stand out. One, you pretty much want to work with a wide mouth vessel, like a flange vessel. <laughs> you have to, you have to. Like a yeah. Flange vessel and silicone spatulas are going to be your best friend. <laughs> yeah, to get um, it out. I mean, you're, it's gunk, right? And yeah. I try to work with wide mouth as often as I can to just avoid the torture of cleaning 2440 joints. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah. <laughs> um, so with that being said, the, the next thing is that when you, if you were to circulate under vacuum and keep all of the potassium carbonate in, I think that that would create a very hyper-concentrated substance to where, now, do you ever check the pH of these things when you're yeah. substituting with water? Is that what you are using as your guide? Totally. And, and I'm going for a neutral pH as a final product. So uh, sometimes uh, I've found that 
it has naturally gone there, depending on the herb or the mushroom working with. In fact, like surprisingly, you'll find that uh, more often than I expected to. Uh, in other cases, uh, I'll buffer the pH. Uh, it, oftentimes you're finding a, a bit higher alkali rating than you'd want to for, sure. for consuming. So, you know, use some acetic acid and bring it down into a neutral zone. Watch what happens too. Like, do we have another precipitation? Does something else fall out? Um, I've found, and now I haven't done this with a, a ton of different herbs and mushrooms, like not dozens and dozens, but, you know, maybe 10 or 20 different things. Um, a lot of them work quite well to bring, bring it down into a neutral zone. And then there are some that find that perfect balance all on their own, oh, which no. is like this glorious moment of like, okay, like this is valid. Like this worked. Yeah. And, this is like a pathway that this herb is perfectly suited for. Yeah, exactly. By whatever the, the natural ratios of acids uh, and alkalis contained in the herb. And then the, you know, the mix of the ethyl acetate, um, it works sometimes, you know, and surprisingly more often than not. So that that's, I would, yeah, definitely implore you to jump into that a little bit more because it's a, uh, it's a super interesting end result and very, very powerful stuff. Yeah. I can only imagine actually, that's one thing that I have not done. In fact, typically I, I've got lots of different reflex, uh, reflux glassware. I even have these little miniature pelicans that I've had made for me. That's just like a 2440 just center portion of the pelican uh, yeah. for me so that I can put those onto all sorts of flasks. Um, I don't play under vacuum a whole lot though. So mm -hmm. that might be something that I would consider because I think that you can actually create significantly different changes inside of materials when there is an absence of oxygen oxygen and, yeah and higher it's, quantity of pressure as far as we talked a lot about combining science uh and philosophy here i, I consider a vacuum environment to be a true hermetic seal sure you know this this is this is really removing everything except for the substance that we're working with and yeah chemically speaking you can see it you can feel it uh, and in some of the rudimentary lab work that I've done and others have done, uh, you can test it and you can see that there is something unique to it. So uh, vacuum is, yeah, is, is an amazing, amazing thing to work with. And, you know, obviously we see some rudimentary methods of, of getting there in old texts. And now right. we have <clears throat> the beauty of vacuum regulators and all kinds yeah. of different vacuum pumps and, and glassware that can handle that type of uh, negative pressure. Uh, so we've got the tricks and tools and we could also do it with a simple little hand pump that people bleed their brakes with, you know, from, <laughs> yeah. from, from the hardware yeah. store, 20, 30 bucks, you know, you're going to get tennis elbow, which I mean, I remember I did that for I years. I did that too for the oh first my couple God. of years. <laughs> Try yeah. doing that on like a 20 liter flask and get it under a high yeah. vacuum. No thanks. <laughs> Not Hours. even interested. Uh, yeah, I've got a couple of 20 liters back here behind me and I, I would never do that. That shit's for the birds. Uh, so in terms of vacuum pumps that you like to work with, are you finding that, uh, oilless pumps are really good for the lab or do you use an oil pump? Uh, what do you, what do you like to use? Cause I know that there's a whole lot of 
difference in terms of how often the oil is going to need to be changed and also mm -hmm. you know if you have uh if if it's not venting somewhere that oil will eventually mist out and distill yeah. on its own into the ambient environment unless you know that's why <clears throat> that's actually the reason why i'm not using a lot of it the only vacuum pump that i have in the lab right now is set up over by a window where mm -hmm. i have an exhaust pipe for it running out the window pulling it out yeah yeah, yeah. exactly Oil mist is ugly and I hate it for that reason. But so my opinion, I like both now. So your your oil pumps like rotary vane and um, you know, these different types of oil pumps, they they draw a harder vacuum. They they can go further, you know, than an oil-free pump. Uh so I would say using a really good one uh, with uh, with a filter for the misting. You can get really nice ones with filters that go onto them. It is definitely more money, but it's worth it because you don't cover your entire house and self with a mist of oil, which is <laughs> yeah. no fun. And you don't have to use a window. Yeah. Uh, but I feel like they are best used with a vacuum regulator. So this is a little bit more of a high-end, more expensive system. Uh, they are beautiful because they can run continuous right you don't have to turn them off they can handle it particularly if you are running a vacuum regulator with them yeah. so if you're doing if you need something for constant vacuum that's what you want now there's something to be said about the art of sealing a system so if you're really good at sealing a system you can use uh, an oil-free pump which to be honest i use them more often than not uh, there's no maintenance with the oil uh, they're easy to kind of service yourself. Sometimes you get a little, you know, you have to be careful with them. You don't want to be pulling liquids into them, of course. Yeah. Uh, dust can get into them and then get into the little seals <clears throat> in, in the pumps inside. But you can just open it up and clean them out and make sure everything's sealed up properly. Uh, and then you can you could pull a really strong vacuum, you know, not to say like 30 inches mercury or something, but something very, very close, let's say 25 or even sure. a little bit higher. <clears throat> and then seal off that vacuum in the system as long as you've got a system that of course can handle that negative pressure and if you do a good job of sealing it up then it can maintain that at least as long as you need and you know i find for a lot of preparations like uh, somewhere between 12 and 40 hours is all you really need to fully react these different preparations and i could definitely i can maintain that vacuum and not lose yeah. any of it in 12 to 40 hours if i do a very delicate job of sealing up all of the joints reducing the amount of joints that you have yeah. and using the, the oil-free pump you know you you turn it on for a couple minutes to get to the point you want to reach uh and then you turn it off and you're good to go so yeah i i love the oil-free pumps they're sometimes a little more expensive uh but you know there's some affordable ones like four yeah, or five hundred dollars yeah. and uh, i use them more than any other pump for sure Super cool, man. Super cool. Well, it's definitely inspired me to get an oil-free pump and start playing with that a little bit more, especially with some of the reflux. I've got ridiculous amounts of great labware that's meant for it, so I should probably start experimenting more in that arena. All right, brother. Well, you know, we, we've essentially come to the end of our time, but what I want to do before we go is to give you an opportunity to tell the entire audience where they can get a hold of you, especially, you know, do you work with long distance clients? Can you work with long distance clients? Things like that, because I know that people are going to be impressed with you and want to search you out. 
Yeah, so I, I, I mean, especially in the last couple of years, uh, I, <laughs> I do a lot of online work. You know, bet, yeah. A lot of us have been quite limited to that. So, uh, yeah, I do uh, distance consultation one on one with people. Um, the best place to find me at the present moment is my personal Instagram. I'm, I'm right in the midst of relaunching. My website's up, but it's about to be relaunched in a brand new way. I'm about to change things up a little bit. I'm going to make myself a little bit more available in some of my more unique work uh, and, and really um, offer some more of my like artisanal products um, rather than just the clinical side of things. Yeah. Uh, but my, my personal Instagram, which is alchemia.arcadia, that's probably the best way to catch me in this, in this kind of in-between phase. And my website is there as well. And there'll be a new Instagram soon. Uh, my website is www.secret-fire.com. So secret-fire.com. And that site will remain live. It's just about to change as well. So that's another way that people can contact me. Um, you know, and, and start up a chat, you know, if they're interested in what I'm talking about or interested in, in consultation, um, I'm always happy to, to help wherever I can. Absolutely awesome. Daniel, it's really been a pleasure chatting with you. I think that more of us alchemists in these uh, times need to have more chats like this. This will, you know, make it available. If, if when I was starting to learn about this work, if I could have accessed a YouTube video, like people will be able to access of this like oh my god i could have advanced my work so fast and so well it would have been a, just a dream come true really yeah that's that's what it's all about you know it's hundreds monkey syndrome and and i love to share and i think that's something new you know a, a lot of alchemists uh, hold their cards really tight and i understand in some ways sure. but I, I love to share uh, in the right circumstances in the right way. And I want people to rise up quickly and then surpass these things we're talking about. Let's, let's keep going, you know, like it's exactly. not about ego. Like let's, let's, let's continue to move forward in that logarithmic spiral. Let's get quicker and closer. <laughs> right. So um, yeah, I, I, I love to have opportunities like this and it is, it's a brilliant opportunity in modern times to get so much so quickly. I think that's, it's that's true. the uniqueness yeah. of this, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just hold on to your pants because sometimes it goes so fast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely. Cool. Well, Daniel, again, thank you so much, my friend. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, likewise. Thanks so much for having me on. It's, it's a, it's an honor to come on your show and speak with you. And to all of our listeners, thank you too. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to hit the like button, be sure to subscribe, hit the bell notification if you're watching on Facebook or on uh, YouTube, rather. Also, uh, the best way to help us is to help get this information out there, share it with friends or colleagues or other people that you think will be interested in this work, because that helps us. And if you want to support me personally for doing this, uh, the best way to do that is to sign up for my Spagyric of the Month Club. You can do that at phoenixaurelius.org. There's links all over in the Apothecary site. For a $75 flat fee within the United States, you can pay 75 bucks and get five new Spagyrics shipped to your front door every single month. It's a really great value. You save tons of money over the retail costs uh, of these, and it gives us consistent monetary support to continue providing things like this and offering more research and information to you because at the end of the day, it's really expensive, takes a lot of special equipment and very difficult to uh, actually perform this research, it takes a lot of time. So we appreciate your support. 
All right. Thanks so much, everybody. Have a good one.